go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts. I'm the senior editor here at EAA for print and digital content and publications. Sitting here next to me, it's... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator and one of your other hosts. All right. Chris, uh, uh, we don't normally... uh, point out like there's sort of the dates that we record these and then they you know they will go live anywhere from one to 14 days later but I think it is important to point out uh, that we are recording uh, this episode on the afternoon of September 11th uh, here in 2019 and uh, and given that that's a powerful anniversary uh, for all of us then uh, that uh, I think opens you up to uh, introduce our distinguished guest that we're very very lucky to have with us absolutely um very thrilled and honored to to have him here. Uh, Air Force One pilot Colonel Mark Tillman is here to join us this evening. Uh, uh, when you're hearing this, he's actually here to present in the museum on the evening here of 9-11. Uh, Colonel Tillman, thank you so much for making the, the trip up here to spend some time with us. Nah, this is incredible. I've always wanted to come up here and uh, very happy to do it. You're a great bunch of folks. I'm having a blast so far. <laughs> well, you, you haven't even seen us uh, work in the <laughs> evening yet here. So. <laughs> um, well, how do you want to do you want to kick things off here? Sure, absolutely. I, and uh, Mark, if you don't mind, sure. I, um, I always like to anytime we talk to anybody who's uh, who's actively involved in flying and aviation as, as certainly as we are. Um, I like to know how it started. Do you have a, an earliest aviation memory? Were you a kid building models and looking up when airplanes flew over? Or how did that spark uh, hit you first? No, definitely. As a kid, I was always building models. But the biggest challenge for me was my dad was a construction worker, and we just didn't have the money to learn how to fly. So there was uh, North Perry Airport was just outside of where we lived in South Florida. But it just, as my dad said, you know, someday you'll get your chance. But right now, we just don't have that kind of money. So you know, it's good watching them all the time. My father used to actually, he built runways. He was a construction worker that would build roads and runways. So I was always out at the airport watching them, uh, you know, either repave the runway, build the runway at Fort Lauderdale, North Perry, whatever. So I had to wait for the military. So I joined the military ROTC at Tulane University. Um, then when, uh, when I graduated, I literally was a chemical engineer, and the Air Force made me a rocket propulsion engineer until I could get a pilot training slot. Uh, About two years later, I got the pilot training slot, started out uh, after pilot training as a C-130 pilot, and then was plowed back in to be a T-37 instructor pilot after that. Um, Went back to Williams Air Force Base and then slowly just kept flying and eventually uh, moved uh, or actually applied to the 89th Airlift Wing out at Andrews Air Force Base, flying the vice president, first lady, senators, congressman, was selected. And after the first year there, lucky enough to uh, have the guys at Air Force One uh, have me fly the backup on a Gulfstream Three. And from then on, I slowly I got hired by Air Force One. So I spent about 18 years at Air Force One. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, so you started uh – you would have started on the T-37 for primary training, then the C-130, then back to the T-37 right. as an instructor. Is that yep, correct? definitely. That, that was the progression. And what was it uh, um, What was it about the, the 89th Airlift Wing, which, is, which handles all, all the VIP flying for the Air Force, correct? Yes. Uh, what was it about that job that attracted you? 
you know, they, they had the newest, shiniest uh, business aircraft. You know, they had Gulfstream 3s and 4s, and they had 707s. A lot of history there. And the, for me, the goal was always, you know, to fly heavies. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I love flying the T-37, T-38, going fast, having the fast pants on. But I <laughs> love the idea of uh, jumping into a cargo plane or a heavy and going around the world and seeing places. And, uh, you know, so going to the 89th for me was, you know, as another opportunity to go around the world, fly dignitaries and uh, five-star hotels, have a blast while you're doing it, and, you know, just continue on my educational flying. So right. it was great. <laughs> I'm still just going to be chuckling at fast pants. I like that. I'm lucky if I remember my adult pants. Somebody's <laughs> hopefully going to have that call sign here. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I have to ask, was the first day you came into the 89th, um, you know, the aircraft, of course, uh, many of them have the special paint job on it, you know, that, how did you feel walking in the door and starting to see those aircraft? I mean, it had to get pretty exciting, right? No, it was the greatest feeling ever. I mean, it was, it, you got hired by a group of people that were the best of the best, and they, they felt that you could make the cut, so it was good, and as a Gulfstream 3 guy, um, seeing the blue and whites and coming in and flying senators, congressmen, uh, all the VIPs in Washington, D.C., it was uh, truly an honor. And uh, nothing wrong with uh, staying clean while you're flying as well. And you stayed in your uh, dress uniform, and while you're flying, you get fed a nice meal, get a chance to go to the restroom. You know, I joke around because my, my son's a uh, growler pilot in the, in the Navy, so he, he's a fighter guy. And, and, you know, that's all I ever hear from him is uh, – you know how dad you're just a pilot where he's an exceptional pilot because he can land <laughs> he can land on an aircraft carrier all the time so it's uh but you know i'm always telling him you know I, when i turn around and i have a great meal and I get a chance to go to the restroom he he's that's not his life so, but we have a good time with it so how in the world did uh, did an air force guy ever let uh, let his kid end up in the navy it was the craziest thing ever he was in go in the air force uh, national guard and then they delayed his pilot training slot by two years. So he, wow. we were in Phoenix, and uh, I came home from flying one day, and he said, hey, I just went down to the recruiter downtown in the Navy. They say they can get me into pilot training next month. I just have to go through OTS or OTC or whatever the Navy calls it. Right. And sure enough, they, they loaded him up, and he was off, and he was ready to go. So uh, wow. he's, been, he's been loving it. I mean, life is so di- – and all my Navy friends and flying with those guys is always different. But now that I've got a son doing it, it's, uh, it's incredible some of the things those guys do. You know, between – he flies with the Hornet guys. I guess, I guess the Growler is pretty much a Hornet with, uh, without the gun. But uh, he's, he does a lot of crazy stuff, and he's deploying a lot, and he's the happiest kid on the planet because he's flying four or five times a week. Wow. Well, we uh, we thank uh, not only you for your service, but but by extension, your son, your, well, your whole you. family serves. Thank you so much. Uh, in that way, and that's that's certainly uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, <clears throat> I was doing a little bit of uh, a little bit of reading the other day about some of the history of, sort of presidential pilots, and obviously uh, on on the VC twenty fives and what we think of traditionally as Air Force One. First and foremost. It, for those that don't know, it's important to point out that that's simply a call sign. Uh, that any uh, anything other than a Marine or, or Navy aircraft that the president's aboard, any Air Force aircraft, is given that call sign Air Force One, correct? No, definitely. So when so, President Bush flew uh, 
the Navy plane out to the carrier, oh, right. out to the Abraham Lincoln that was a Navy one. So Was that the first time we'd ever had a Navy one? That was my sign? understanding. And, oh, and the Navy did it. Uh, it was hilarious because they had like five of them all lined up. Case for the one broke, then the next one broke, and the next one broke. They're, <laughs> they're kind of worried about it. So. They were not going to screw that no, one up. My, my Navy brethren were uh, really worried about that day. So. I can only, uh, only imagine. Um and uh, and obviously the uh, you know the larger airplanes have uh, now on the the seven forty sevens sorry what I think of as seven forty seven the BC twenty five was that a three person crew uh, on the flight deck were you still maintaining a did you still have a flight engineer on Definitely, that yeah. position. The- 747, the VC-25, 747, 200. So it has actual flight engineer position, two pilots, and a navigator position. So oh, it was a navigator. It was a four-man four four, or four-woman crew. crew up front gotcha. there. So anyway, with, with no disrespect to, to those, but when you think about um, uh, what I'm, where I'm going with all this is when you think about the, the command pilot position, sort of um, you were part of a crew, but, but, but you're sort of the face of the crew as the, once you're in the left seat. And it, when we talk about presidential pilots, there's only really been a handful of people in that position when you going back to uh, sort of the end of the Roosevelt administration or before he died and in independence. And I, the number I saw was something like it seemed impossibly small, like only 15, 16 people or something like that would have been sort of left seat command pilot on an Air Force aircraft carrying the president. And that was powerful to me. To think yeah, what a that, small number it is. That's how it was designed so that uh, the presidential pilot, uh, I was number 12, so you're assigned to the you president. Were 12. So you're actually assigned to the president. There's seven other pilots in the unit, they're all presidential pilots. But tradition is the presidential pilot, numbered pilot, is going to uh, do all takeoff and landings from the left seat because you're, you're basically assigned to the president. Right. And your deputy, when you're gone, will do all the takeoff and landings from the left seat with the president on board. Everyone goes through the uh, uh, civilian training as a captain. We all get captain qualified. So you can always fly from the left seat, every one of us. But the experience level is so high. So you've gotten uh, the presidential pilot in the left seat. Your co-pilot is equally as qualified. He's not a youngster. He's been uh, in the military a minimum of 10 or 12 years uh, flying heavies. And uh, so he, he or she is all set, ready to go. But uh, it, there's always a backup plane as well. So even though you're not in the left seat of the primary aircraft, there's a good chance you'll be in the left seat of the backup aircraft in command of that. And that's how you get the majority of your training in the 747. Interesting. So you said you were number 12. Now, is that a numbering system that goes back to, yeah, to, sure the, to the 40s? So that's... It goes back to the days of when they, basically when the 707s came online there okay. under Eisenhower, Truman, and right. it works away works its way on up right to present day. So uh, so if you were the, the 12th, then that means that before you started, or at, just as you were about to start, more people had walked on the moon than been a presidential pilot. <laughs> <laughs> that really that's blows wild. my mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's truly an honor, and that's the way I, you know, I look at it as, you know, it was just, it's just how the, the unit, the tradition of the unit is, you know, and same with the Marines and Marine One, they've got a, Marine One pilot that's selected, and you know, so I'm, it's just a tradition that we hire heavy experience, and uh, that's the experience stays with the unit for quite a while, just to make sure that the president's always protected. Sure. So you said that you know, and I don't, I, you know, answer however you can. I know you do um, a lot of training. You said on the on the backup aircraft. You know, um, is there 
Is there any odd training that you can talk about that you guys had to do with the airplane or anything like that that maybe a normal 747 captain wouldn't have to do or that, that, that that's able to be talked about? No, we, we did a lot of simulator training. So you'd go through the simulator in your primary aircraft every year as well as your secondary aircraft. So I was a Gulfstream 3 and 747 pilot. Uh, my deputy was a 757, uh, 747. So any aircraft the 89th uh, uh, airlift wing had, we always had one pilot that was qualified in, in case we needed that capability for the president. So, um, But we did a lot of training in the actual aircraft. We, also, we did simulator training. But in the actual aircraft, we pulled engines back. We flew on two engines. We did everything so we knew what was going on with that aircraft. Uh, uh, checklists, uh, not necessarily memorized, but in reality, they kind of were, as well as emergency procedures, everything else. So when you simulated an emergency for one of the pilots, the pilot really had to know basically what the checklist was going to say. Even though the flight engineer is running the checklist for you, that's what we'd quiz them on is to ask them, hey, you know, what, what do you think the next step is? And, and they'd always tell you, yeah, this is the next step. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Because, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, you, Air Force One, nothing is ever going to go wrong on Air Force One. Because the moment it does, you're carrying 14 press in the back. You've got press all around you. So the message of the president that day will be completely shadowed by this is what happened on Air Force One. So something as simple as just an electrical glitch we make sure it never happens. So if you're doing anything electrical-wise, the engineer's talking it over with you before he throws a switch because all you need is have the president downstairs doing an interview, and all of a sudden his lights go gunk, gunk on and off, and then everyone's like, all right, you know, what's actually happened to the jet here? So, you know, secondary electrical systems online before you do anything crazy. So, I can imagine that something like, a, you know, an inadvertent deployment of oxygen mass in the cabin would probably... <laughs> It's not a good day it, it, for you. It, it, when that happens. It's a bad day. Bad. Yeah, I, I mean that is uh, we. There's a there's two engineers. Secondary engineer is always back in the primary up. So something simple as opening the door, um, you know, and opening the uh, the passenger door, you know, double checking to make sure that the slide isn't armed or whatever, you know, and that just crazy stuff like that. Just double checking each other. So. If they ever had like an accidental inflation of the slide, they or may have. They may have back in the Clinton administration, but it was uh, it was purely accidental, and it, you know it was just one of those things where if people think you know that when the slide deploys, you can hold it shut with the door, that's not going to happen. So it was it was on the news. So I'm not telling any secrets. It was on the news, uh, but. Uh, you know, President Clinton was a great man. He literally, you know, was like, whoa, <laughs> not this door. And then they, we brought him to number two. It just went out the other door. Isn't that something? Not an issue. Stair truck comes up to the second door, not the prime door and left. So. It's amazing. You know, I would imagine just little things like that um, probably have a ripple effect. I mean, because, you know, using a different door on an airplane, while it seems small, when you have – you know, Secret Service and the media and everything. I mean, that probably causes, there's a ripple effect, I would assume. No, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's an orchestrated event, every movement of that aircraft. So when we go to a new airport, we send in, or every time we go to an airport, we'll send in two or three advance agents, and they run a two, 300-question checklist to make sure that everything is uh, has been set. So it's, uh, I mean, heck, when we brought the plane here, the 747, back in July, of uh, I think it was 2004, 
the uh, the challenge for us was we couldn't go down any of your taxiways because you didn't have a tug for us. So we had to turn the plane around on the runway. We need like 157, 158 feet to do a turnaround. Your runway is 150. So we had to have the <laughs> nose wheel go through the uh, end taxiway. So we had we had people out there marking it so I could have an actual you know assessment of how I'm doing in the turn. And I had to get far enough down the runway, turn, and, and just bring the plane back around and let it sit on your runway. So President Bush went ahead and met with the local uh, folks here in Oshkosh, and then, then he came back to the plane. So we tied up your runway for a couple hours. Wow. <laughs> that is uh, absolutely remarkable. I, when you're talking about going to an, uh, an airport you've never been before, you know, so you're sending out agents and advance team, uh, would you as air crew ever – pre-visit that airport just to make sure you understood the the lay of the land i just i can only imagine i mean for me as a as a, as a private pilot who likes to travel around I, you know going to an unfamiliar airport is uh you know is a thing on my my checklist of stuff to be very a little bit extra aware of and and thinking ahead to where am i going to park things like this somehow i have a feeling that that landing air force one someplace you've never been and then saying you know uh you know can I get a progressive taxi uh, <laughs> taxi instructions? And I'm sorry, did you say it was that left on Bravo? I mean, yeah, that doesn't happen. I mean, yeah, it's a just, it's kind of a thing where when you before you go into the airport, the advance team has already given you a, a document that shows if you take uh, taxiway Kilo off the runway, you're going to make a right on Kilo, a right on Delta, okay. and you follow yourself in. And it's not a, it's not one of these things where all of a sudden as your taxi and the tower goes, you know, now go Echo Foxtrot whatever. <laughs> <laughs> when we pull off the uh, runway, you know, it's just contact ground now. And then, hey, ground, it's Air Force One. And it said, Roger, Air Force One, you know, welcome to whatever. It's not Air Force One, you know, Daxiway Delta to right. Echo, whatever. Yeah. Even Hold shorts overseas. of that 150 that's crossing <laughs> no, in front of you. That doesn't seem to happen very often. No. We seem to own the airfield yeah. quite often. Yep. That, that's got to put uh, – I mean, there's obviously there's got to be something – Maybe satisfying isn't the right word. There's some sort of comforting of just knowing that uh, you're you, obviously you're taking your role extraordinarily seriously, but probably about as seriously as it as it gets. You've got you know you've got important passenger, important uh, important people on board the airplane. So it's got to be nice to know that that call sign carries that weight um, of saying okay, this is Air Force One, and you know no, you're not going to. They're, they're not going to send you over here to the far end of the airport and make you hold while six other airplanes go in front of you, all those sorts of things. But that's also got to, the, the, the pressure must be remarkable as well of knowing that everybody's watching and everybody's listening and everybody's paying attention. No, definitely. I mean, the, the Air Force One call sign immediately has everybody watching you. And when you land at an airport, if you've got a group of airliners that have been waiting number one while you're coming into land and there's 10 of them, every one of them is uh, pretty – you know, they're happy to see the plane, but they're also upset by the fact that they've been delayed. So, I mean, sure. kind of the big joke always was for us, uh, you know, we took it extremely serious not to delay anybody. But like landing in Atlanta, you know, the couple times, you know, some of the airline pilots, instead of being on the PA, they'd actually still be on the radio. And they'd, sit, <laughs> and they'd, announce, they'd announce to their pastors over the radio, you know, if you look to your left, there's Air Force One. And that's the reason why you're being delayed. And that's why your money and, and all that stuff. Wow. And then the 
tower would come up and go, well, hey, that was a tremendous speech, and you just gave it to everybody here at the airport. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, just kind of funny stuff. But, you know, you can, under, you can understand and sense their frustration. But for us, it, it was truly an honor. And everywhere we went, it was neat to have the air traffic controllers. Uh, they were right there with us. You know, Air Force One, you know, it's an honor to be with you, and it's an honor for them to control us. And, sure. you know, we look at it that way as well because it's – it is not easy to control us. I mean, we have to land to the second. And while we're coming in at you, I mean, we typically do 8-4 mock everywhere we're going. And nothing says, uh, you know, we're in trouble when uh, we leave Washington, we're heading to O'Hare, and we're doing 8-8 mock as we're cu- trucking across, sometimes 9-0 mock, trying to get the president back on time. And uh, the bow wave of moving airliners out of the way for us is, is a, a incredibly difficult job for the air traffic controllers but sure you know that they make it happen and they do an amazing job for us that's incredible uh you know the one thing i wanted to ask is you you're talking about how you, you know basically you well not basically you do work for the president um it, can you explain you know can you say uh, do you guys gel pretty well i like, did you get to know um the president or how is that how is that relationship i guess on a day-to-day basis like you know how does that how does that all kind of work you know, the president has uh, got a lot of people underneath him, and the commander of Air Force One technically is uh, reports to the United States Air Force as well as the White House military office, but he works directly and assigned to the president. So the face of the crew is normally the, the president's uh, head flight attendant that we have. So that that's who the president deals with for the majority. As a pilot, normally deal with the president's chief of staff or maybe deputy chief of staff. Or a lot of times you deal with the mill aide to the president. The, that's kind of the face for the president. But if the president needs something, he, you know, President Clinton, President Bush, they had no hesitation to come to the to- cockpit, you know, and Tillman, we need this or whatever. And it's, uh, and you just make it happen. I mean, it's truly an honor to support him. And it's pretty easy to make all, you know, what they want to have happen, happen. Because, I mean, they're, they're not asking for crazy stuff. They're just asking for the ability to get to the location maybe a little sooner and have all kinds of things happen for him. That's totally easily done. So uh, President Bush, uh, the younger, well, both President, uh, Presidents Bush were pilots, but you were flying uh, 43. Uh, did he ever want to come and sit in the left seat like like I certainly would uh, right, <laughs> well, right. in the no. unlikely event that I were president? No, he didn't. And, and the, the, what basically happened was the, the only time he really came to the – he came to the cockpit a lot, but the only time he really came up and – was discussing aviation matters was after he landed on the Lincoln uh, with the uh, the Navy aircraft. I think it was the S two or something. He when he landed on that, he actually flew it there, and then the pilot landed. So he came up to the cockpit with the uh, Prime Minister from Australia, and we were bringing him back to Crawford, Texas. And as he as we're coming over Midland, Texas, the President and the and the uh, Prime Minister came to the cockpit. President Bush said, you know, can you show him Midland? And, you know, he said, yeah, of course. So I circled over Midland because you could see the little, uh, you know, fires from the uh, oil fields and all that. And then so I asked the president, hey, you know, what was it like landing on the carrier? And he goes, you know, it's it's pretty impressive. They pointed right at the carrier, and then they just crashed right into it. And, uh, you know, so I was laughing, and I, I just said, hey, sir, which, uh, which wire did you hit? He goes, we, we hit the four wire. How was that? Was that pretty good? I go, yeah, if there'd been like six or eight wires, that'd have been great. But, and, and, and he was just laughing. We were going over the whole thing. And uh, so he's telling me all about it. And then I said, hey, sir, do you want to jump up here, you know, and fly now that you're, you know, recalled or whatever? 
and he looks and he you know the 747 has three autopilots so <laughs> he looks at it and he goes yeah it looks like a real tough job Tillman how many autopilots you got three <laughs> yeah but but only one's working now you know and then he's laughing and, he, and then he just hits me and he goes hey you're doing great and he goes back downstairs so oh, good man oh, but no funny. he never jumped in the left seat wow and I think uh, on a carrier, isn't the four four wire the last, last wire? And your last three chance. is your sweet spot. Three yes, is your three target, is sweet right? Spot, as my son so. tells me all the time. He's, he's <laughs> that all the time. Oh wow! Oh, that's something. Well, uh, given as I said at the start of the show that we're recording this episode on uh, September 11th, on the anniversary of that uh, that unbelievable, uh, tragic, horrific day, um, you were flying the president that day you were yes. uh, down in was it sarasota florida sarasota, yes. would you would you step us through uh the day as uh, as you saw it definitely the uh you know it was a normal trip we had planned to do an education visit to the state of florida so it was uh no child left behind concept going to jacksonville on september 10th and repositioning to sarasota that evening September 11th was the president was going to meet with the elementary school students, read to them in the elementary school, and then we were heading back to Washington, D.C. Uh, 747 was ready to go. Our takeoff time was anywhere between 1030 and 11 o'clock. The crew, depending on your crew position, uh, shows up either three hours prior or two hours prior. Um, Most of the front enders, the pilots will show up two and a half hours prior. So that's basically what I did that day. I showed up about 815 in the morning go on the plane as I'm walking through the jet, uh, you know, I, um, that's all I ever do is I just go through and I talk to each crew position. They let me know how the jet's doing, how everything is. The, the jet's always immaculate. The flight attendants do an incredible job. Same with the engineers and crew chiefs. But as it got closer and closer to when the first tower got hit in New York City, it became, uh, you know, we, we, we started seeing things on television. And the plane at this point didn't have uh, satellite TV. All it had was tuners, so we would get ground stations. So you'd only get the three major news networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. So they were watching. The radio operators are always have to watch television to see if anything goes on in the world. So they're watching the Today Show, one of the radio operators. And all of a sudden he sees them a report that a plane has hit the first tower, the North Tower. And uh, so he, they call me upstairs and let me know, hey, you need to see this. So I go up there and I see, yeah, the smoldering, a plane has hit the tower. So this is, you know, 8, 8.45, 8.46 in the morning, first plane has attacked the tower. The, there, we listen to all the command and control uh, radios, CIA, NSA, all those folks. No one was saying anything. In fact, they were actually saying that it was an uh, aircraft accident. President Bush was going into the elementary school. Andy Card advised him that, yeah, they've had an aircraft accident in New York City. To all of us, though, pilots up top, it was such an enormous, uh, you know, indentation in the side of the, the building. They kept calling it a light aircraft. It had hit the, hit the tower, and we're like, yeah, that couldn't have been a light aircraft. You know, it just wouldn't have done that kind of damage. There wouldn't be that much fire, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so we started getting more information after that. The FAA is now involved. They're starting to tell us that, yeah, that plane looked like it was a, uh, an airliner. And then shortly after, just right after 9 o'clock, obviously, the second plane hits the second tower. And from that point forward, the country was under attack. We actually knew it. You could see it on the Today Show once again, but then all the command radios. Plane's got about 40 phone lines capability to it. 
and all of a sudden everything's coming alive where you're getting you're getting situation reports from all the agencies letting you know that the FAA advises they feel that they have uh, numerous hijacked aircraft along the East Coast. At the same time, Andy Card, you may remember him in the uh, on television, leaning over to the president and just letting him know the country's under attack. And at that point, we start getting information. And uh, my command and control lets me know that we're going to go ahead and relocate the president of the United States for continuity of government. The vice president is also being relocated. Speaker of the House we're trying to find, and Sec State down in South America. Sec Def is trying, we're trying to get a hold of Sec Def as well. But the president is now in a position where he needs to start moving because we've got to get him in some safe location because we have no idea what's actually going on. We, we don't know if he is a target. All we know from the FAA that numerous airliners, the transponders are off, and they're not talking to people. So. That was our challenge at that point. Now, very quickly, I don't like to interrupt, but uh, when you're talking about getting him to a safe location, we're talking about continuity of government. Are you automatically thinking Washington, D.C. at this point, or or do you have, is there a, a series of locations, or are you just thinking, let's get him airborne, period, and, and then figure out where we're going? No, the biggest thing is to get him airborne, period. Get him, get him out of that location. Get him airborne. He has command and control on the aircraft. Then move him to a location that's been predetermined to get him safely in an environment where he has tremendous communications. He is safe. The vice president was put in that scenario. So the vice president is, is safe underground. The president now, we need to move him and get him safe so that they have continuity of government so everybody is able to communicate. Um, for what we needed to do, though, we needed to keep the president moving. I joke to this day that all the op orders that they have for the president to move them and relocate them, you know, they should have a big asterisk at the top there, and it should say, is your president from the state of Texas? And if so, just jump to the bottom because he doesn't want to relocate. President Bush had no desire to hunker down. His, his, his job, as he told the vice president and Dr. Rice, was, I'm heading to Washington, D.C. He's going to get into the battle. He's going to get into the thick of it. So those were the countermanding orders. The president, as he's coming to us, that's what we get told. No, he's not going to hunker down. You're taking him to Washington immediately. And that's exactly what we did. We got airborne and started heading to Washington, D.C. right away. And what are you, uh, on that flight, once once he's on board, once he's airborne, uh, what kind of information are you are you getting? Are you learning more and more about the events of the day? You know what we did was the radio operators. I wanted that. I, I needed to get this information. So after I made the initial takeoff, started heading across Florida through Gainesville, Jacksonville Center came up and said, "Hey, you've got an unidentified aircraft above you, an airliner." its transponder was off, it wasn't talking to anybody, and it was descending into us. So they assumed it was an airliner that had been hijacked. They're asking us if we have it in sight. We had it on TCAS, and we were moving in a position to turn to see if it actually followed us. So it turns out it was not a threat, but initially it was. It was an airliner, lost its transponder, its home company was letting them know to lock their doors. So they kind of got saturated on what was going on and they weren't talking to the controllers. So 
the plane was still flying, but it was it was going into the Tampa St. Peter area, and it was descending as we're climbing out. So um, eventually everything came together. Jacksonville, after a number of minutes, said, hey, we've, we are now talking to the aircraft. It is no longer a threat. But we did turn out to, away from Gainesville, turn back out toward the Gulf to see if it would follow us. And it, it was not following us at that time. But at this point, though, we needed all the information we could get, and I was constantly being asked questions of where they could go, et cetera, by uh, Mr. Card and some of the Secret Service. So I gave it up to uh, – we had three pilots on the board that day, so two pilots then took over. I jumped out of the seat, and the radio operators then had all transmissions of the president over the speaker upstairs so we could hear what's going on between him and the vice president. So we could hear all the talk about – the FAA discussing this is the information we have. Vice President was funneling information to us so that we wouldn't have to have five or six different uh, channels coming into the president in his office. Vice President was the focal point. Wow, that's that's amazing. I'd never heard the story about this other airliner possibly being a threat, but at that point, uh, I, I think certainly from the the disconnected layperson's perspective that I had at the time. I, you would have believed anything, and Definitely. you know, and as the news reports, there's the 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 quality and the variety of the information was just all over the place, um, and and if, you know, if you had told me that hey, somebody hijacked another one and is is somehow trying to find and come down on Air Force One, that certainly could have been uh, could have been possible. Um, would I'm assuming that at that point you probably did not have a fighter escort, or did you have fighters at that point? No. Once we left uh, the uh, Sarasota area, we did not have fighter escort. Access to fighter escort, uh, escort uh, at all times. But at this point, I didn't need a fighter escort because there were, we didn't seem that we were, we were a target at this point. We could outrun most things. The fighters really aren't going to provide us that much capability uh, in the big sky. When I'm, when I'm flying along, though, if, if an airliner is going to come up on us, you know, it's such a big sky and I can outrun, outmaneuver, et cetera. It was eventually good to have uh, have fighters on our wing, which we got later. But you know, initially climbing out, it just didn't seem necessary to me. So, but the the fog of war was was heavy. It was uh, as the president's coming to us, we're told that the Pentagon was bombed, hit by a truck bomb, and that there were numerous car bombs going off in the mall capital area, which wasn't true. It was, but that's what people per, had perceived because if you saw the Pentagon, you never saw any really an, an airliner hit it, but you don't see an airliner parts all over the place so right you don't see a tail sticking not out at or all something. so no one really knew what it was and then eventually we got information that no actually that was airliner had hit it so that was that made sense that's the third airliner now and then we got finally got word from the faa fourth airliner now is out over the ohio valley so now we're working that you know to see exactly what needs to be done and the challenge for the president was he wanted to get back to washington dc but he couldn't go back. We couldn't go back quick enough because we weren't sure what the airliner over the Ohio Valley was going to be doing, because it looked like it made its turn and was heading towards Washington, and it was going to beat us there. So that was the challenge. It could hit Washington D.C., and then it wouldn't be safe for the president to come back, or there'd be so much commotion that we didn't know what was waiting for the president back in Washington. We wanted to get everything safe before we made a turn back towards Washington. So we turned away. We went over the northern part of Florida and the Gulf of Mexico. And at that point, the president wanted to address the nation 
So we started looking at that, but at the same time, the vice president asked for permission for the fighters that had joined up on the final airliner for shoot-down authority, and he was granted shoot-down authority. But shortly after that, the FAA advises uh, the, that plane had gone down, and the fighters eventually advise us that, no, they didn't shoot it down, but the plane actually went down you know, and crashed into Shanksville. So, you know, after that, you know, we got word that they were talking with the passengers, talking with the flight attendants. So, I mean, all this started coming together. You know, the true heroes of the day, besides the first responders, were those on Flight 93 that actually took charge of that aircraft and tried to save the rest of the passengers. You know, unsuccessful as they were, they saved thousands of lives in Washington, D.C., as far as I was concerned. You know, a, a large aircraft full of fuel, uh, hitting some kind of uh, target in Washington definitely would have would cause major concern. So you were um, you were holding and and sort of delaying your trip to uh, your direct flight back to DC or your direct routing back to DC as the flight ninety three drama is unfolding. And was it uh, was it just once you heard it was down that was when you were able to then proceed back to DC. Or was it no, far enough when, away you, you were able to start heading back? No, once, once the plane had, uh, had crashed, they, now the plan was, all right, when are we going back to Washington? The challenge for the president, though, was all of this is occurring and the American public it can't hear the president, see the president, because we didn't have streaming video capability on the plane. So the, the question is asked, all right, we need to land so that the president land immediately so the president can address the nation. We chose a highly secure Air Force Base, Barksdale Air Force Base, and we, we started heading towards that. On the way there, we uh, got fighter escort, two F-16s from the President's Guard Unit out of Ellington, jumped us, came up on us. And, uh, you know, that, that was a, a really, you know, of all the radio calls I've heard in my life, it was Houston Center, you know, what, a, what a lot of pilots, you know, they're always talking to the controllers. Well, we had picked up the phone and we talked to the FAA command post and said, hey, we don't want the controllers talking with us because they're going to give away our position. We're the only game in town right now. We'll tell them what we're doing, but not where we're going. They can watch whether we're turning, descending or whatever, but don't talk to us in case there's other general aviation aircraft airborne that they couldn't been uh, spotted. So we had fighter support eventually, but Houston Center comes up on frequency, and Air Force One be advised you have fast movers at your 7 o'clock. So I, how fast are they? They're supersonic. They're coming up on you now. Where are they coming from? We have no idea. And then all of a sudden the fighters come up on frequency, and I think it was Cowrie 4-5. You know, it was Air Force One, Cowrie 4-5, flight of two F-16s. You know, we are your cover. And sure enough, two F-16s joined right up on us from the President's Guard unit that he grew up in. And they were right there with us for the rest of the day, making things happen. So it was incredible. And what are the chances that it was that same unit? <laughs> yeah, yeah you know, his, the commander of the guard unit there, you know, has fighters on alert for the Gulf of Mexico. And he got tired of us flailing, and he's protecting the boss. So he launched his alert fighters because, you know, in his mind, after we talked with him later, he, he said, hey, you know, it, it, we are already being attacked. Air Force One needed protection, and our guys are the ones that are going to do it. So they took care of it. Couldn't have written history any better to have, you know, the Ellington guys take care of their own. So it, it, it's an incredible uh, group of folks that are down there. And they they went ahead and made things happen. And, you know, it's just, it's just neat the whole day of them being on our wing and doing all kinds of stuff. But there was a point, though, when he said Houston Center is telling you about these fast movers. You didn't know who they were. 
No, not and, at all. I mean, we were, we were concerned about who these folks were and what was going on. How, right. how come we're being jumped by fighters or whatever? But, you know, eventually we had asked for him because there was, there was concern back in Washington from the vice president that we may be the next target. And as a result of that, I asked for fighter support, AWACS plane overhead. And they were slowly working that, to, you know, get that together, as well as the Air Force was working a tanker support for us, you know, so we could hit a tanker so we could stay airborne. But really wasn't much plan planned to stay airborne uh, with the president. It was better to get him on the ground, get him, get him extremely good communication so we could eventually make our bid to go back to Washington, D.C. Right. Okay, can you step us, uh, keep stepping us through the day? You land at Barksdale. Sure. You're able to address the nation. Where did we go from there? Yeah, address the nation at Barksdale. Then after that, we continued to move them on, kind of decoying, brought them into Offutt Air Force Base, put them deep underground so we could talk with the National Command Authority. True Texan in my mind, uh, you know, expecting him to be there 12, 13 hours. He was there just a matter of a few hours. Then we, he came, President Bush came back to the plane, said he wanted to get back to Washington right away. So we headed right across the country as fast as we could go. plane was going as fast as it could go. We had fighters uh, from the guard units or from the Ellington coming up on us. We had fighters from Andrews Air Force Base, uh, F-16s come out of the guard unit there. Joined off the nose, F-15s from Langley joining up on us. So we had a giant furball over the Shenandoah Valley. So we kept them safe all day. And all of a sudden now, my own services, uh, you know, we got fighters everywhere jockeying for positions. So the fighters, you know, kind of evened it out. We put two F-16s on the wing uh, from Andrews Air Force Base. The F-16s from Ellington shot underneath us. They were going to lead us into Washington, D.C. That's what I wanted. I wanted history to show President's Guard Unit came alive and took care of them, and they were leading us in, doing you know suppression as we're coming on in. F-15 stayed high, give us that look-down capability. But the F-16s from Andrews, you know, a guy named Mark Sasserville, great pilot, joins up pretty much. Uh, I was joking, it wasn't really on the wing. It seemed like he was inside the wing. He joined up on the fuselage, and uh, <laughs> you know he was damn close. And President Bush and the staff are looking out the window right at him, and he's just giving a big thumbs up to the president, letting him know, hey. You know, we're ready to move. You make the word. We're ready to make things happen. And that's on the wing all the way into landing at Andrews Air Force Base. That's exactly what we needed at the end of the day because as we came over the Pentagon, it was still smoldering, and you could see all the damage. And that was the first real damage we saw the entire day. Everything else had been on television. You know, we brought the president back. Marine One then took the president on a low level through Washington kind of escaping and evading all through the city, not the normal routing, brought him back to the White House, and then he addressed the nation that evening. So. Wow. I, I, I'm i not off uh, speechless uh, very much, but uh, yeah. I am. I mean, that is uh, – uh, you had a front seat to history for sure. Um, and that's exactly what I, I see it as. I'm not a hero. I'm not anything. I, I actually saw an amazing man who was in the infancy of his presidency, you know, in the first eight months, having to do something that most people don't do at any point in their presidency. So he became a war president at that point on that day. And, and as far as I'm concerned, he performed remarkably well. I never had any doubts about him. And to this day, I have no doubts. If he, he gives me a call at the house and says, I need you, um, I guarantee you, I'm already, you know, the uniform be, may be a little tight, but I'm in it and I'm ready to support. I, I will say, you know, and this is slightly off the topic of aviation, but maybe uh, you might even remember this event. But uh, something I saw the other night of all places on, on like ESPN was 
um, he threw out the first pitch at a Yankees game. Definitely. When they came back. And it was very poignant because he there were a lot of people telling him he shouldn't do that because, of course, it was an interesting time in this country. And he said, no, the nation needs their president to throw out the first pitch in New York City to let them know that it's okay. We're going to get back to normal. And, uh, and then I think it was Jeter or somebody gave him a uh, – uh, some advice yeah. that he better throw from the mound and not short of the mound. Short of the mound, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and he was ready for that. He practiced, and then, you know, he had to wear a bulletproof vest, second chance vest, because there were still threats in New York City. And, uh, you know, that, that that was a challenge. But we left Washington, D.C., and while he's in the, the plane, you know, halfway out in the plane, he's got the ball, and he's throwing it back and forth with his staff, you know, to make sure he's warmed <laughs> up, ready to go. That he was not going to miss that pitch. He was ready to make it happen. And Jeter's joking around with him was, you know, that 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 didn't phase him. You know, he he had the true Texas mentality. He's going to make this happen. He's going to make it the best thing ever. So and he did. Uh, so damn, so really proud of him. That was an amazing pitch. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's uh, uh, as we're getting close to the end of the the time for the episode. I think it's probably it's nice to end on a little bit of a a little bit of a high note. But what a what an absolutely remarkable day. What an unforgettable day for anyone. Uh, I think anyone in the world who was alive that day remembers where they were when they heard. And uh, I, I can't overstate, uh, Mark, how grateful we are that uh, you, as somebody who played such a pivotal role, um, number one, of course, for your service, but for, for taking the time to join us here to talk about it on this show. And also, uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, as we're recording this, you're getting ready to uh, to speak to a, uh, an appreciative crowd in our museum tonight. And so, uh, once again, thank you so much for, for taking the time to come visit Oshkosh. Well, thank you. I, I've, I've had a blast here. You guys are incredible. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Well, thank the, you for doing it. Yeah, and the pleasure and privilege is, uh, is truly all ours. And uh, and speaking of thanks, uh, thanks as always to everybody out there for listening, uh, for taking the time to uh, give us a review on iTunes or Google Play or any of those other uh, sources. We also appreciate uh, f- feedback sent to us, feedback at ea.org, or you can leave comments uh, at our uh, blog at inspire.ea.org where these episodes are uh, all posted. So you can always catch up, uh, listen to them there. Leave us a note. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, I've said it before, and I'll keep saying it. Uh, we would not be able to keep doing the show if we wouldn't get uh, didn't get feedback from listeners. So keep that up. And with that, uh, we look forward to catching up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>